Hey, everybody. You're listening to the 107 Podcast, where we get together every fortnight, and sometimes more often, to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. In this episode of the podcast, we're talking to Ron Zasadzinski, physicist turned founder and CEO of CodeGeek, a full-service web design and development firm in Fort Collins, Colorado. He's co-owner of a co-working space called the Fort Collins Hive, and he's also a pilot and flight instructor who teaches nationally. Ron has over 30 years and 8,000 hours of flying experience. Wow. Uh, Ron, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ivan. Great talking with you. It's great talking with you, too. Now, did I butcher your name? Uh, you're close. Uh, in, in American English, we would say Zazadinsky. Uh, in Polish, it's Zasadzinski. The DZ is a J sound. Oh, I was actually going to ask you about the genealogy of your last name. So let's start there. Sure. Yeah. Uh, it's Polish heritage with the last name. And uh, my wife and I actually just got back from a vacation in Chicago. Um, and one of the things that was attractive there is Chicago turns out, as I understand it, to be the second largest Polish speaking population in the world, only after Warsaw, Poland. Um, now, I do not speak any Polish, but we traveled to the Polish section and uh, went to the Polish Museum, which was pretty cool, and had dinner at uh, Stara Polska, which is a wonderful Polish restaurant. Wow, I was going to ask you if you were able to speak Polish. Afraid um, not. <laughs> <laughs> so um, are you a first-generation or second-generation American from Poland? Uh, my grandparents are from there, so a few generations down. And did you grow up in Colorado? Uh, no, I grew up in, on the East Coast in New Jersey, uh, and there's a, another large Polish population in New Jersey, so that's where my... My grandparents wound up when they emigrated to the to the U.S. Now, we go back to 2010. We met at an event apart in Minneapolis. And I think we were just sitting next to each other when we started chatting. Um, and I think we figured out that we were both physicists. Exactly. It was such a wonderful discovery. <laughs> and both ran web design and development companies. I know. What are the chances of that? Pretty cool. I love that connection. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, what I didn't realize, or at least maybe I'd forgotten, is that you actually studied physics and humanities. And so as a double major in physics and psychology myself, I totally understand the dichotomy of studying two separate fields like that. Can you talk about how and why you ended up with two different focuses? Uh, sure. Um... That, and I had forgotten that, that psychology was another area of study for you. So that is really fun to have that in common as well. Yeah. So I went to Harvey Mudd College, and one of the requirements at Harvey Mudd, uh, which is a, a science and engineering school, but it's technically a liberal arts school, and they require one-third of uh, a student's courses to be in the humanities and to have a, uh, I don't know if my, it used to be a minor when I was there. I think they've changed that now, the terminology. Um, so I minored in music, uh, tuba performance specifically, uh, but I also love philosophy and was only a couple of credits short of having another minor in philosophy as well. Wow. And you also play the tuba. 
Yes, I do. Um, yeah, I played after college for quite some time and in Fort Collins, played on a brass quintet until just about five years ago. And uh, life, you know, continues to get busier, I find. And so I, I let it go for the time being about five years ago, but I may pick it up again. We'll see. I suppose you can never forget to read music once you know how to do it. It's kind of like riding a bicycle. I hope so. You know, I actually haven't picked it up for, for the five years, and uh, it, it was just crossing my mind a few weeks ago that I wonder if I can still read music. <laughs> so maybe, maybe later today I'll go pick it up and try it out. Send me an email. Let me know how that goes. I'm really curious to know. <laughs> sure. So you grew up on the East Coast, and you went to school on the West Coast, but you ended up in Colorado. And I know you uh, kind of did some work at Lawrence Livermore as well. How did you make your way to Colorado? <laughs> That's a great question and a fun, a fun one. So the, the short answer is like many adventures in life, I followed a woman there. Um, <laughs> that's how I wound up in Colorado. Uh, but you're correct. My, my degree is in physics, and I worked for Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, or more correctly, I worked at Lawrence Livermore National, uh, National Laboratory for the Department of Energy. Uh, and I worked both in atomic physics and nuclear physics for the three and a half or so years that I worked there. Um, and it was a very, it was a, a wonderful, wonderful time um, in the sense that I, I really enjoyed the work and it was a unique opportunity. Uh, I was very strong-headed my senior year at Harvey Mudd and wanted to get a job in physics. And really, you normally need a PhD to actually get work as a physicist. So when campus interviewers, you know, companies came to, to do on-campus interviews. I, uh, I researched everybody that was coming to interview, found the ones that had physics departments. Now, they were only interviewing for engineering positions, which I, you know, would be, they would consider me with a physics degree for the engineering position. But every interview, as soon as I walked in, I said, just so you know, I'm here interviewing for a physics position, and I know that's not what you're here for, but that's what I'm here for. Um, <laughs> and I actually got one call back from Lawrence Livermore National Lab and got an offer wow. and um, got the job. So, it was a pretty cool, pretty cool opportunity. My experience with Lawrence Livermore has been only in the distance. You know, I read papers from physicists who worked there and published work there, and I only ever um, got to know their website very well while I was in Africa doing my graduate studies. And I always wondered what it would be like to work at in a lab, but for the government. I spent time working at Honeywell and on government projects, but I think that's different than actually working for the government. So... My question is, what's your biggest takeaway from doing research for the government? Um, I would say, and so while the Department of Energy is run by the government, um, the, the lab, national labs are actually operated typically by a university partner. So at the time, it was University of California, Berkeley, that operated Lawrence Livermore National Lab. So in some ways, it was more like being a combination of academic and government research uh, as opposed to being purely government. At least that's how I would describe it. And what was that like? Uh, it was great. In the, I, I really enjoyed it. So worked with an incredible group of people in the two divisions uh, that I worked in and you know, doing very interesting research. So I was an experimental physicist and... Uh, on the atomic side, we had a, a machine that we built. Uh, I didn't build personally, but you know the scientists there designed and built that could study. We could trap any element uh, in the periodic table and control the charge state of that element. So we'd have a you know a gas of this element and could strip off 
any number of electrons we wanted from one to as many as there were, and then study the uh, electronic transitions, and we did X-ray spectroscopy to understand what was going on with those, those atoms. Uh, so really fascinating stuff. And then later I was in nuclear physics, and we did uh, experiments on the uh, accelerator out at, um, I'm trying to remember now, it's on Long Island, uh, for whatever, a Brookhaven National Lab. So we did experiments there. Uh, so it was, it was very interesting work. One of the biggest challenges in the end, and the reason I left, was that you know, I learned from being there for the length of time I was that the, the, the PhD physicists in our group spent half of their time writing grants for research just to keep funding coming in. And oftentimes it wasn't for research that they wanted to do. It was really for research that they could get funded. Um, and that was a really disappointing discovery. <laughs> so, you know... The future ahead would have been uh, going back to school for another five years to work in a field where I would spend half my time writing grants for research I didn't actually want to do. And I thought, nah, I think I'm out. Boy, that sounds remarkably similar to the reason that I decided not to pursue postdoctorate study and academia. Very similarly, it felt like you had to fund work that you weren't necessarily interested in. Um, and that's that's curious. I it's unfortunate that that's the way the system works sometimes. Uh, yeah, that is unfortunate. I'm curious just to hear a little more about your experience uh, as a physicist. I don't know if you talked about that on a previous podcast episode or not, but I'd love to hear more. No, I haven't. I think this is actually the first time it's come up. So I ended up leaving South Africa in the middle of um, working on my uh, PhD. And I started out in experimental physics and ended up in theoretical physics, at, at least for my graduate studies. And the work I was doing at Honeywell Technology Center um, here in Plymouth, Minnesota, was of the experimental type. And it was working on projects that were um, either commercial. So we had, I was in the sensors division. So we worked on sensors for uh, companies that made paper, so for paper mills, and we would we would work on things that measured thickness of paper um, without destroying or without, um, you know, doing anything destructive to the paper as it sped past at very high velocity. And then I, I also worked on um, uh, projects that were for the government, but didn't have a ton of exposure, exposure because those are typically reserved for U.S. nationals. And so it was more along the lines of peripheral, peripheral involvement. And typically, the projects that Honeywell did were... They were large, multi-million dollar research projects that went over the course of five or ten years with very little... Um, chance in some cases of becoming commercially viable pro uh, products. And so that was a really cool thing. It was a really cool idea um, and was wonderful to be a part of. Unfortunately, when I went back to school, the, the work that I was doing was so abstract, it was in the field of differential geometry, that there really was no, like with DARPA and with an experimental physics project, you at least have the idea that something might come out of it eventually as a product, and maybe the NSA or the FBI will use some portions of what you're working on. When you 
when you're in academia, at least for in the group that I was in, it was for abstract thinking that sometimes involved, um, you know, super string theory and theoretical physics that kind of was a nice to have. It was kind of the cherry on the top. And so, you know, watching your professors try to figure out how to fund this and um, try to figure out how to write for grants that were maybe tangentially related to the work that they were actually doing and wanted to be doing was frustrating. It, like, they were not really doing what they wanted to do. So I feel like that was in parallel to the experience you had. Yeah, it sounds very much like that that, that was. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate because, I mean, science is so important and physics is so fascinating. Uh, I, I wish that the the collective group could find better ways to to make it work so people would stay. I agree. I agree. Did you ever end up with a commercial product or like did you see any of the work you did at Lawrence Livermore turn into something that was other people were using or was it mostly for papers? Um, well, mostly for papers. So the goal of our research uh, in both fields was in both atomic and nuclear physics was not to create a product. Um, but on the atomic physics side, we were really cataloging the behavior in the light emission spectrum from every element at every single charge state. And uh, the benefits of that are then when you're looking at a high temperature plasma, say a star, you can then looking at that spectrum, not only understand what elements are present in that star and in what proportions, but what charge states, yeah, what the, you know, the various ions of the uh, uh, various elements are. So you can get that distribution as well and understand that high temperature plasma even better. And then on the nuclear physics side, we were actually trying to find the quark gluon plasma, which was an experimental test of quantum chromodynamics from your theoretical side of the physics world. Um, and we were not able to achieve that when I was there. But 20 years later, just a few years ago, at the Large Hadron Collider, they actually did achieve uh, uh, and create the quark gluon plasma. And so we're able to confirm the experiment that we had been working on 20 years before. So that was quite rewarding to see that the, at the LHC that they did achieve it. What was the major difference that allowed them to be successful and that perhaps um, didn't give you the, the success that, um, that you'd hoped for? Uh, truly just beam energy, needed more energy to, to get there. So time, right? And technology and the availability of the, the Large Hadron Collider. Exactly. And money. Lots and lots and lots more money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sometimes makes a difference. Yeah, so you were at Lawrence Livermore and then you founded, well, is it accurate to say that after Lawrence Livermore you founded Code Geek in 2002 or was there something between? Uh, yes, uh, my the start to my aviation career is what was in between. Um, so when I moved to Colorado following a woman, as I mentioned, um, which also, by the way, ended like two weeks after I moved here, still was the best decision I ever made <laughs> to move to Colorado. Um, but when I was uh, at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, well, at Harvey Mudd, I learned to fly there. So they, at that time, actually had a very small flight school that accepted roughly 10 students per year from Harvey Mudd into the flying school. Um, so I learned to fly there and got my private and instrument ratings. And then when I moved to Colorado, uh, looking for work, I wasn't able to find any science jobs at the time. So I just kept going forward and got my flight instructor rating and then taught flying um, 
in Colorado for about seven years and was chief flight instructor out of flight school uh, in Fort Collins. Where did you get your passion for flight? Yeah, my passion for flying came from my dad. So he worked for Eastern Airlines for um, 25 years. So my entire childhood and most of my adult life, he worked for Eastern as a gate agent, not as a pilot, but as a gate agent at Newark Airport. Um, but we would fly on vacations because at that time you could fly on a pass as a family. Uh, and so we took uh, you know, a good number of vacations throughout my, my life. And I, th I think it really comes from him. And it, partly in my blood, perhaps, because I, I remember building my first styrofoam model airplane out of a Cheerios box when I was around two or three. Awesome. Yes, it's one of my earliest childhood memories ever. That's amazing. I remember building model airplanes, um, Spitfires specifically, but I wasn't two. I was, I think, 10. <laughs> and I remember um, hanging those from my ceiling, but I never actually imagined myself flying them. So, so what kind of advice would you have for someone like me who's you know, reasonably comfortable with the engineering and the physics of flight? Um, I've no issues going on a jet airplane, right? But I'm not terribly convinced about prop airplanes where there's uh, one other person and maybe um, a backup of who knows how to actually control the plane. Like, I I'm not comfortable getting into one of those small planes. What's your advice? Uh, my, my advice is, uh, I have several thoughts on this. Uh, so flying is, is as safe as the pilot wants to make it. Uh, something like 85% of all incidents or accidents involve pilot error. So most of the situations that occur that cause a problem are, are well known. Uh, and you know, better pilot training and good pilot judgment are really the key to avoiding those. So you know, flying with a pilot who you have confidence in is important. Uh, as far as reliability, you know, no, knock on wood, you know, I've flown for over 30 years and, and over 8,000 hours of flight time, as you mentioned, and uh, you know, knock on wood, I've not ever had a mechanical problem that was um, at all uh, that affected our flight. So, you know, flying is flying in a small airplane statistically is about as safe as driving in a car. Now, airline flying is far safer. In fact, it's probably the safest thing you could do. It's probably safer than sitting at your computer at your desk and your office uh, as being on an airliner. Um, but general aviation in smaller planes is about as safe as driving a car. And you can, you know, just like in a car, when you have a, a good driver who has good judgment, uh, you know, things are safer than, uh, you know, somebody who's reckless and tailgating and driving too fast. Okay. Um, the statistics that you gave are making me a little more comfortable with the idea. Um, what happens if you're prop stops spinning like what what do you do for backup well uh, all airplanes are excellent gliders and so if our engine quits uh first of all that the propeller actually will not stop spinning unless the engine seizes which is incredibly rare um, more likely it's something like the airplane ran out of fuel or you know something like that some other malfunction and the propeller will keep windmilling um, but the more important part is that the airplanes are great gliders so i specialize in flying Beechcraft Bonanzas, which are single-engine airplanes, and Beechcraft Barons, which are twin-engine airplanes, and they hold between four and six passengers, or four and six seats total, including the pilot, depending on the, uh, the model and the year. And they have a glide ratio somewhere between nine to one and 10 to one. Uh, and so what that means is, you know, if you're a few thousand feet in the air where we're typically flying, we can glide for several miles uh, before landing in a single-engine airplane. 
And of course, in a twin engineer plane, you have an extra engine there to uh, allow you to continue flying and find a better place to land or, uh, you know, ideally at an airport. Have you ever had to do an emergency landing? Not because of an engine failure. So not because of any... The only time I've only had to do one emergency landing, and it was a medical emergency with a pilot that was flying. Um, so that's the only time I've had to return to an airport under duress, if you will. And I'm sure you handled that immaculately. It went well. That was an interesting story uh, because there was an extra twist. It was a pilot I had never flown with before, which is common. Most of the flying instructing that I do now is conducting flight reviews. So every pilot has to fly with an instructor at least once every two years to stay current, including me, even though I do that for many pilots every year. Um, and so I was doing that with a Bonanza pilot who I'd never flown with before, nor had I flown his airplane. And he was having a, clearly under, under physical stress, you know, something was wrong and he couldn't even speak clearly. Hadn't lost consciousness, but it was clear that I needed to get the airplane back to the airport. Well, this is a retractable landing gear aircraft, and you know, on final to the airport, I put down the landing gear, and only two out of the three green lights lit up on the landing gear. So, you know, it's much more likely that a light was burnt out than one of the three gear didn't come down. But I didn't know. I didn't know if this was a, you know, something that was a, an issue with that airplane or, or what. So, um, but given the medical nature of the emergency, I felt the best thing was to land and just knowing. You know, knowing the systems very well and having flown those specific airplanes for a couple decades, uh, you know, and knowing how the, the systems work, that if the left gear is down, the chance of the right gear not being down is almost zero. Um, I took the chance and landed, and it, it was just fine. And we got him to the hospital, and um, turned out he had a, a cardiac situation occurring, and they wound up doing like a triple or quadruple bypass surgery that day. And I did bump into him a year later or so, and he and his wife both were, were very appreciative that we got back to the airport quickly and, and he was able to get the help he needed. What a great story. So uh, was it indeed the fact that the light was burned out that all three landing gear were actually down? Exactly. It was just a, a, a minor malfunction with that single light. So um, if one of them was down and the two that were down, or if one of them was up and the two that were down were unlikely to be um, not down together, would you infer that the third single landing gear was the one that didn't come down? Um, let's see. Well, on the, on the Bonanza and the Baron, the left and right landing gear are interlinked. Uh, the nose gear is a separate system. So it would depend which light was out. You know, if the oh. nose gear light was out, it's possible that the nose gear is stuck up and you have the two mains down. I see. But, but in our case, it was the right landing gear light that was not illuminating. But knowing that the left was down and locked, the chance of the right being down and locked was, you know, better than 99.9%. Wow. You feel, you make me feel like this is something I might want to try at some point in the future. Not this year, but maybe soon. Well, I, I hope you do. And here's my, my very brief soapbox on, on why you should, if you have the interest, is that we live, you know, humans have been around for, what, a million years, perhaps, as humans, and maybe 70,000 years of civilization, uh, whatever, however you want to measure that. And we live in a very tiny, roughly 200-year window of human history where we get to hand-fly airplanes. Um, you know, they only... Powered flight only came into being at the beginning of the 20th century with the Wright brothers, so it's been just over 100 years now. And the automation in the airplanes that I fly today is so high that, um, you know, with a new airplane, anything built since about 2006 that I'm flying, 
from the moment we break ground, we can turn on the autopilot and push buttons and fly through weather and everything and don't have to turn the autopilot off until 200 feet before we land. Um, and to fully automate that is not that far down the road, including automated air traffic control and everything. So, and there's all kinds of advances going on now with drones that may someday carry humans, which would all be automated. Um, so the chance of this being a, a hobby for people more than 50 years from now is pretty small. Uh, so anyway, if you have the interest to do it, you'd be one of the few in this tiny window of human history to do it. And I encourage everyone to, to go out and take an introductory flight ride and check it out. I might just do that. You've encouraged me to do that. I was a little scared going into the podcast, but uh, I think I think this is something I'll consider. Now, do you do you think that there is a future that includes electric planes? I have no idea about... Um, whether that's a viable technology right now. And, and I'm, I'm not talking about drones because those are already electric for the most part. I'm talking about passenger airplanes, ones that um, you, know, you see over the sky, in the sky all the time. Um, they are doing research on that. You know, so there are some experiments being done to try to, to make that work. The challenge is the horsepower required and the length of time for which it's required is very high. Um, you know, even in a, the airplanes I fly, they're typically around 300 horsepower aircraft, which is quite a lot of power. So to operate at that power level for, you know, long enough to fly somewhere is difficult. So I think the most likely the battery technology will have to advance quite substantially. But, you know, it's in progress. People are, are seriously trying that out. So eventually we'll have quiet jet planes that, that ferry us automatically from port to port. I love the future. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so um, you spent time doing plane stuff, pilot stuff after Lawrence Livermore started Code Geek in 2002. Um, you guys are a web and design firm. Um, everything I know about you is you kind of are technology agnostic, right? Uh, to some extent. I mean, we certainly have to keep our focus in, in a few areas. So we work primarily with open source software. So we work in PHP and Ruby on Rails are our two primary languages. Any particular CMS technology that you like? Um, yeah, so for web applications, when we build those, uh, Ruby on Rails or using PHP with the Laravel framework is our direction. And then on the content management side, if it's more of a you know, traditional website with a content management system, uh, we work with about half a dozen different content management systems. WordPress, of course, is by far the most popular CMS in, in human history so far. Uh, so, so a lot of our work is in, in that area simply because that's what people are using. Um, but you know, we, we stay flexible and we have you know, changed course over time as needed. And you know, we always have our eye out for what are the newer technologies coming down the road, where are things heading so that we can stay on that leading edge. What are you looking at as a potential leading edge right now? What's it, what are you evaluating these days? Um, so technology-wise, I'm not seeing any significant uh, course corrections required. So I think it's more, for us, it's in the, the type of service that we're providing and explaining the value of what we're providing. So for example, you know, custom design is one of our specialties. Our designers are, are incredibly skilled and experienced. And so we're able to really talk with the company, understand what their needs are, understand their character, and our designers can create a custom design that really sets 
you know, reflects their character and sets them apart from their competition. And I think that will be increasingly important to the right set of clients as time goes on. And I say that because like third-party platforms to set up simple websites like Squarespace um, for a regular website, Shopify for e-commerce site, even Wix are becoming quite powerful now. Um, I would say, you know, they do have, of course, significant limitations when it comes to custom functionality. Um, but for basic functionality, they're pretty good. So for us, it's a value proposition of the clients that want to stand out and not look like all the other websites built on one of those platforms, then we are able to, to do that for them. Um, the other category, that, of course, is functionality. And where they need functionality that's customized or complex or uh, information that, you know, doing data display of some sort, uh, visual data display, uh, anything like that, then then we have the ability to extend WordPress or build a web application that can accomplish that. And we built some fairly large scale web applications and that's that's the work that's really fun for us. I agree, that's really fun for us as well. And I think I agree with you with the direction it's taking. It seems like a larger portion of the market has access to things that are easy and more template oriented like the ones you mentioned, Squarespace and, Squarespace and Shopify and so on. And I think our focus has been more on the uh, kind of on the user experience and the content strategy for larger organizations that really, they don't just need a custom look because they have a marketing need that needs them to be different than a template site and different than their competitors, but they also have a functionality requirement. Um, and so when we do get into something that's really a web application, we you know, we specialized in Drupal and that's our bread and butter. And I, you know, those are, those uh, projects are certainly large and interesting and complex and fun, but they're different in nature to the other ones. And um, I think we're, we're trying to do something similar to what you're doing, except that we're not agnostic. You know, we, we focus on Drupal. Some of the conversations that we've had in the past have been around you know, our business and operations and how we're doing certain things. You know, I've picked your brain, you've picked my brain. Um, I want to ask how that's going. How big is Code Geek these days? Are you still based in Fort Collins? How's that changed? Um, yes, and I have so enjoyed our conversations over the last eight years, you know, as business owner to business owner, and plus with our shared background and, you know, physics and humanities, it's it's I really have loved our connection and in uh, and, and our advice. It feels like our companies have gone through at times sort of parallel paths at similar times. So it's, yeah, yeah, you've been a great um, reflection bouncing board. Uh, you too. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. So we, we've grown now to 12 employees, um, which is much bigger than I ever expected us to get. And uh, things are, things are still going very well and we're still in Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, nine of our employees work out of our office, part-time on the office, part-time at home. Everybody likes to work from home uh, some of the time. And then we have three employees who are full remote. Uh, and we have, you know, we've worked out kind of procedures and culture to, uh, to make that work pretty effectively. Um, and a question for you. Now, you may have talked about this on another podcast, but I understand you've now gone to a full remote team. And I'm curious how, how that's working out for you. Yes. Um... We have. We went fully remote at the beginning of 2017. 
And I was originally very much in the fav- in favor of being together physically in the same space in an open plan office because I believe that there is value to that in being able to share knowledge and to see each other and so on. And I still believe that there is value to that, especially for organizations that are perhaps young and uh, maybe don't have their own common um, values and mission figured out yet. Um, Maybe they're still figuring out their values. It was super useful for us to have that kind of physical proximity to figure those things out. I think for a more mature organization, remote becomes um, very appealing. And so when we became remote, we didn't have to think about our values and what kept us together. We kind of had that figured out already. And so it was really the logistical um, and tactical tasks that we had to figure out in our interactions in the first few months. So things like, oh, I should actually have a desk at home where I'm going to be working so that I can always go to the same place and have a good ergonomically uh, comfortable chair to work on. Or, you know, I really like a standing desk. And we have to punch in and check in and, and check out so that people know that we're available. And these are kind of the hours that we're available and we're expected to be available in those hours, but we still kind of have our own schedules and do what we need to. So the transition was um, experimental. It worked out well. I absolutely love being um, a remote company. I think I think I can say the same for uh, all the other people that work with me every day. Um, and it's been really... Uh, we just uh, published... a. Um, actually, we're in the process of hiring our first remote employee. So hiring the first re- remote employee... What I mean is um, all the hiring we've done thus far has been for people who, you know, live in the Twin Cities. And so this is the first time we ventured outside of the um, outside of Minnesota. It was um, refreshing to see so many applications that, you know, we actually had to do our due diligence going through the candidates as opposed to, you know, having very few candidates to choose from. So that was pleasantly surprising. That's great to hear. Can I ask where you uh, advertised or how you posted the job to get that many qualified candidates? Of course. We, we wrote a job description that we published on our own website, um, and we tried to make it as unique to ourselves as we could. Um, and then we linked to that on a website called weworkremotely.com. And we we only had the ad up for three weeks, and we got about 25 applications that looked like they were the part. Of course, we had to filter it down, um, but We Work Remotely was the only place we actually advertised. Um, and of course, we tweeted about it, but that was, we didn't use Monster or LinkedIn or do any of those things. And that was kind of an experiment in and of itself. We were going to see what the returns were, and... Um, if it wasn't working after a month, we were going to post it on other boards, um, but we didn't need to. That's great. That's really wonderful to hear how well that worked out for you, although I'm sure it was a challenge to, uh, to make a final selection. We narrowed it down to about half a dozen, did video interviews with those six people, and then narrowed it down to three of those three, we originally thought we were going to give 
would choose one and do one project with that person. But we ended up doing uh, a paid project for each one of those three people and then a retrospective at the end of the project. Um, and then we have one candidate that we were in the process of negotiating an offer with. It was the first time we hired where it wasn't just me hiring. We had two other team members on the committee, and we discovered we needed a tool to use to manage that application. Yeah, what tool did you wind up using? We ended up using a tool called Workable. So it's workable.com, and it's a software as a service, as you'd expect um, in the 21st century now. And it's an app, technically it's an applicant tracking system and it does great integration with other systems. Um, but it's not one of these behemoths that um, kind of does payroll and benefits and all these other things as well. Um, and it has a really reasonable subscription model. So you pay $50 per candidate, uh, $50 per month per candidate. And when you publish the job is when that $50 per month starts. And once you've hired, that's when it ends. Okay, cool. That's really good to know. Yeah, I would highly recommend it if you... Yeah, absolutely. And how many uh, employees do you have at 107 now? Uh, we are up to eight employees, and we have four to five contractors that we work with um, as we need different skill sets and as we need, um, you know, as bandwidth requires as well. Now, you said you had an office. Is that, do you office out of the co-working space, the Hive that you co-founded? Uh, yes, and that has evolved as well. So when I co-founded The Hive uh, with Lori Maycumber, my business partner in that space, um, I think Code Geek had three desks in, in the office out of nine. And then we rented the others to, as co-working does, you know, to solopreneurs, other small businesses. And I, I love that. The interaction was fantastic. And then as, uh, as Code Geek has grown, as people naturally left the co-working space, Code Geek just kept taking over the desks. And actually, just as of two months ago, Code Geek now has all the desks. So <laughs> uh, it's no longer truly a co-working space um, and really is, is just Code Geek. Tell me a little more about the space itself. Is it an open plan office? Is it cubes? Uh, what does it look like? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's, a, it's an open, open plan office with a couple separate spaces. Uh, so our main area has five desks, and then we have another area with four, and then an inner office that we either I use as my office when I'm there uh, or as an alternate conference room. And then we have a, a primary conference room with a, a table, and you can fit about 10 people in that main room. So that's so we have you know it's kind of several pods of people, but it's open space, and we found some pretty effective ways to make that work for ourselves. You know, we found uh, before we kind of worked that all out, we found that you know people interrupting other people became a problem. Um, so we worked out a system where we're all on Slack, and if someone has a question for someone else, rather than blurting it out loud and interrupting everybody and that person, uh, we do QQ for a quick question on Slack, and then when that person has a moment, they respond. And then it kind of proceeds from there. That was one of the things that we struggled with a lot in our open plan office was interruptions and balancing those with um, valid, you know, conversations that could be really fruitful and productive. And it, it kind of ended up 
where people spent an awful lot of time working heads down with headphones on, and that meant don't talk to me because I'm busy. Right. Do you have um, kind of that same experience with headphones as a cultural, not a cultural, but as a visual cue? Um, you know, not necessarily specifically because we worked out this QQ system on Slack. Uh, many of our employees will be working and, you know, don't want to be interrupted, but don't have headphones on one or two might because they want to listen to their own thing. Uh, we have a couple of employees that like to play music out loud, which is, which is fine with the rest of the group. So it's really a, an interesting combination that does work well. Uh, and I think part of the reason that it does work well, even as a, a, a company of, of similar age tiers, um, is that people are able to work from home as well. You know, we're very flexible with regard to hours and location. And so people are able to work from home. You know, typically a day or two a week is, is very common for our, our, our team um, in different days of the week. Uh, so people get, I think, their privacy and their, you know, the needs met that way. And so when they're in the office, people do enjoy the the camaraderie and the personal interaction. So, so we still find value in that, but I find it fascinating that you've switched to full remote and there's another company, uh, one of our former employees now works for, uh, and they've just switched to full remote and they're much larger. They're about 50 people and they've gone to full remote. So I'm always keeping my eye on, you know, what's working well for others and seeing, you know, evaluating what might work well for us. But at the moment we really like the hybrid, the hybrid model. So a couple of thoughts there are a great deal of success stories that are out there for companies that are as large as 50 who are fully distributed. And I would, um, I'd point you in the direction of Lullabot and for kitchens, especially if you're interested in figuring out kind of what they've done to mitigate, uh, you know, some of the certain issues that come up in being a fully distributed company. And then the other thought is um, for our listeners and for you too, of course, Ron, there's yonder.io. Yonder is a uh, website, and there's YonderCon as well that's run by Jeff Robbins, and they are completely dedicated to the culture of uh, remote work um, and the culture of a distributed companies. So I would encourage you to ah. check out their podcast, the Yonder podcast. Um, and Jeff is actually the founder of Lullabot. He's no longer with Lullabot, and he's kind of pursued and has a passion for remote work because that was kind of the foundation of um, of Lullabot. You know, they started in Iowa, but with a nationally distributed workforce and have been very successful at it. So uh, check that out if you get a chance to. Yeah, I appreciate the recommendation. I love listening to uh, to podcasts to keep myself educated and entertained, and so I will I will definitely check that out. Wonderful. Um, you know, I I feel like I've I feel like we've wow we've been talking for a long time. This is awesome. Uh, I have one more question for you. Do you have any recommendations for a good book to read? Um, absolutely. So. Uh, the book that I read uh, that I'm going to recommend is called The Righteous Mind. The subtitle is Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. So there you go. I just mentioned the two things you're never supposed to bring up. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the author, okay. <laughs> I, between us, we can do that, right? Absolutely. Uh, the author is Jonathan Haidt, which is spelled H-A-I-D-T. And I first read the book a couple of years ago, um, and he actually has a new book out on a different topic. But I find, I, I love understanding human nature and studying human nature. I, I like to 
try to understand why I behave the way I do, why we behave collectively the way we do. And this book is um, really good on, you know, right now, obviously one of the huge issues uh, in, our, in our country right now is, is, is the division of people. Uh, and it seems to be politics and, and, of course, religion divides people as well. And he has some, I think, really wonderful mental models of how our minds work um, and explains, again, it's a model, but I think he has a very good explanation for why people are divided. And, and he does provide some uh, techniques for you know, bridging those gaps and, and building bridges. We certainly need more uh, mental models for understanding what we're um, experiencing these days and, and for um, trying to bring humanity forward. Um, so I appreciate the recommendation. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, so for you listeners out there, just um, go to the 107.com website and the link will be there. Uh, Ron, thank you so much for spending your time with me. Um, I always appreciate talking to you and it was wonderful getting you on the show and maybe we'll get you back in a year or so, see how things have changed. Well, I would love that, Yvonne. It's always wonderful to talk together and uh, I'd be happy to, to join anytime. That's great. Thank you. Ron, Ron is online on Twitter at Ron underscore Z is his handle. Check out codegeek.net as well as his co-working space in Fort Collins at hivefortcollins.com. Although you may not be able to get a desk there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to the 107 podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thanks for listening.